The Poetic Podcast. Hello and welcome to The Poetic Podcast with me, Jay Rosanna. In this episode, we will be talking to Worcestershire poet Suz Winspear about her love of poetry and her new book, Picking Blackberries in a Plague Year. Hello, welcome back. Now, I do love a theatrical performer. Many of my poetic inspirations offer as much emphasis to performance as they do to the poetry itself. So today we are heading over to the Boston Tea Party Cafe in the centre of Worcester to talk to the fabulous poet and compare extraordinaire, Suz Winspear. But before we do that, let's listen to an extract of Suz Winspear performing her fabulous poem, The Testimony of Samantha Eldon, aged 13, and the full video is available on YouTube. I don't like it here. It's like school, but the doors are locked and I can't go home. I'll never be able to go home. Mummy and Daddy don't want me anymore. They can't bear to look at me. Someone told me that. I'm locked up and teachers come in to give me lessons, but they don't try very hard. They don't teach me much. They said there's no point in setting me any exams because I won't have a job or a career or anything like that. I won't have a boyfriend either. They told me that nobody is ever going to love me. Every day, the counsellor comes to talk to me. She calls it a therapy session and she says she's listening to me. But she isn't. She has never listened to me. She tells me I'm having delusions. That's what the people here call it, delusions. But I'm telling the truth. When they brought me here, I was eight years old. I didn't have the words to tell them what happened. And now I'm 13. I do have the words. I've tried telling them. They still don't believe me. Everyone thinks I'm a monster. What an incredibly moving and evocative performance. So without no further ado, let's head through the doors of the Boston Tea Party. Suz Winspear, hello. Hello. How are you? Uh, a bit warm, otherwise fine. I think we're both a bit warm, but your hair looks absolutely fabulous well, as always. What tone is that? Uh, this is ultraviolet Schwarzkopf. But yeah, yeah obviously I had to look my best for radio. Well, sit here, you've got a cappuccino, which yes. I originally thought was a cup of tea. Well. I've got a cup of tea, which confused me even more, and I've got some chocolate brown. I so, had a big breakfast. You had a big breakfast. Yes. Go on, what's breakfast in the in the Suss house? It varies. There are always eggs involved. Ah, right. Okay. But last night I had a bit of leftovers from the pasta I had. So this morning I made an omelette and put the leftovers of dinner into the omelette. Nothing ever gets wasted with me. And you're an early riser? It varies. Depends what I've been doing the night before. I was certainly an early riser today. I imagine you're a late settler. Yes. So 
I first met you 2020. Yeah, on it was a, online. On a line. I was reading a poem, one of the first readings I ever did, and it was about getting my eyebrows waxed or threaded, I think. <laughs> we definitely met on, online. Yeah. Dear yeah. listener, I think it was. So do you do you prefer in-person, online events? Or? I much prefer live. Yeah, I Yeah, when you get a real audience... And you get the energy, and you can tell what's going well, what is, and you can feed off the energy. And yeah, I thought you were going to say that because if you don't mind me saying this, when I watch you, I'm like transfixed, and it's because I think there's a theatre about yes. your performance. Like one of my big inspirations, which I always go on about, Dylan Thomas, that kind of oh, yeah. theatrical, where yes. um, the performance is as important as the words. It's standing and, up and declaiming exactly. to his loyal followers. And I get, I get that in spades from you. Yeah. So part of you, where does that come from? I think it is a natural part. I actually did drama as part of my degree. Along with English and history. And I think at that time, in real life, I was a bit diffident and nervous. Right. But getting onto the stage was lovely, because you know what you're doing. It's a structured situation. The audience knows why they're there. You know why you're there. You know what you're going to say. And you can just relax and enjoy it. How do you go from poetry to comparing events, which you compare very well? Thank you. Yeah, I think it was during Lit Fest one of the Lit Fest events and somehow they needed a compare and I've sort of been getting better at it over the years. I think most of the open mics I've done in Worcester you've compared. Yes, I do. If not all of them. And putting people at their ease. Yes. And, you know, sort of being a sort of friendly, smiling front person who doesn't take themselves too seriously. Yes. The problem is I'm now getting hypercritical of other compares. Are you? I noticed at the Worcester show yesterday, yes. we was performing, and the microphone was too high, and the compare left her there and didn't move it down for her. Yeah, I think he just moved that wretched microphone down. Yeah, it's rude yeah. just leaving it up. It's funny you should say that, because I've done... Quite a few in-person events now, because I'm quite tall. Yeah. Reasonably tall. Ooh. I think it is a sign of a good compare, a sign of a good host to look after the people, mm. or just be present in the moment and go, yes. right, just need to sort this out. Yes. Just clearly between Ree and me, if we were following each other, somebody would have to adjust something. That would be an interesting, interesting line-up, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never do that for a live event. <laughs> Can we talk for a moment, just talking about theatre? I've done, I, I've done my homework. Oh, I've done my homework, sir. Yeah. Uh, I'm a visual thinker. Can we talk briefly, if you don't mind, about visual Kai? Visual Kai, have I said yes. that correctly? Yep. Yeah, visual Kai. Yeah. It's the Japanese genre. It's not so much the music as related as the, the staging and the presentation. And it has varied... And evolved a lot over the past 20 years. Yes. But basically, if you think of some Japanese glam goth. Yes. Very visual, very gender fluid. There's always huge gender ambiguity with it, which is rather wonderful. Yes. You never quite know who's male or who's female, and people perform in personas. There are male performers like the Onagata actors of Kabuki Theatre, who have always performed with a female persona. And sort of fantastically costumed, and often the videos are amazing, all the mini films in themselves. So, where did your interest in that 
emerge. I go just, back a little bit. Yes, go back quite a long way. I just happened to see, and I was already obsessed with Japan, but I saw a magazine thing about a band called Versailles, and they looked interesting, so I went onto YouTube, and the video came up, Versailles, some of the choir, and it was like ticking all my boxes. There was practicality, wonderful costumes, song theme of vampires. Yes. Oh, what is what, what is not to love? And of course, the whole gender ambiguity. Yes. And gender fluidity. And I want more of this. Got hold of as many of their size CDs as I could. We got as many as were then available in the UK. And thought, hmm, more more bands like this. Found Malice Misa and D. Well, it just burgeoned from there, and I've been collecting ever since. Wow. And every now and again, a brown box from Japan turns up. You clearly have an interest in Japanese history. Yes. That comes through. I think, I, think, I think everyone's worth that one. I think every time I meet you, we, Japanese history comes into it somehow. And I know you work in a museum. Tell me about your life in the museum. You must see an awful lot of things that the public don't see. <laughs> yes. Um, something I've talk about. <laughs> Japanese history. Yeah, yes. I mean that was well. That was my lockdown project. Because March twenty twenty, I had realised a few days in advance. Well, obviously, I'd woken up on Sunday morning. It was March twenty twenty, and I just had this overwhelming feeling. There was this kimono exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, and it just struck me that if I didn't go down then and there. Despite the hangover, I would never get to see it. And I don't know what this isn't, how this instinct happened. Yeah. So I washed station, did eventually wash up at B and A. Right. And the exhibition was absolutely wonderful, it was a gorgeous thing. But all the way it was sort of thinking, okay, what is going to happen next? I could see that you know, there were people even at that time wearing masks, which really isn't normal in the UK, certainly back then. And there was actually a chap on the on the underground in full gas mask. Wow, okay. And there was that, I don't know, a sort of feeling in the air. And I thought, okay, something's going to happen. And on the way back, I was thinking, you know, Italy was in lockdown. What if we go into lockdown? That was a Sunday. And the Tuesday, the V&A went into lockdown. Our museum was still open. It quickly struck me. We had these Japanese woodblock prints in our collection. And I'd already seen them. I'd already taken photos. If we had to go to lockdown, that would be a nice little work-from-home project. So our last day in the museum was the Thursday. On the Friday, I was printing out me images of the, of the prints and ready to start work on them. And I'd already been poet in residence at the Porcelain Museum, at the Museum of Royal Worcester, and I'd discovered their amazing collection of 19th century Japanese woodblock print books. Obviously, 19th century... I sort of looked through them and found the Hiroshiga. Sort of amazing works of art by the greatest 19th century Japanese artists that were just sitting in that archive that hadn't been noticed or worked on. And so that was how the ex- our exhibition came about. Somehow it was discovered that Yudin Museum also has an amazing Japanese collection. Embroideries and fantastic needlework. That, I mean, you just can't imagine anyone doing work so precise. And then they have these amazing hand scrolls, and then boxes and boxes of ivories. No, I think sort of things for, for the exhibition. I I knew that we would have, and 
course, at the end of it, we have far more than we have room for. So you've got a lot of things to choose from. How do you, do you choose a theme? The whole idea was the interaction between Japan and the West. Japan had been in lockdown for over 200 years. So Japan was pretty much unknown territory. In 1853, the American people suddenly discovered Japan. And it was amazing. You know, the Impressionists suddenly saw a whole new way of making art. And you know, these two cultures meeting and colliding and sharing. That was the whole idea behind the exhibition. I have a, I have a dream one day of travelling Japan by ferry. I watch a lot of YouTube videos, and I watch quite a few, like solo travel and others, who they just travel places like Japan, but they only use the ferries. Oh, yes. What an amazing trip, because the difference in just the the attitude and the behaviours and just the service, it's just like, it just looks like an amazing experience to go and do. Yes. I'd love to do that one day. Oh, yeah, so would I. It would be wonderful. (laughs) So let's peel this back and go back to your... Dawn, if you like, of poetry. So it's about the time I put first class for crayon. <laughs> right, okay. No, I literally always have been writing poetry. You know, it's just something I've, I've always done. Was there a particular kind of thing? A lot of the poetry that I've seen, of yours, it seems to be a natural world. Yes. Uh, uh, there always seems to be a spiritual thing built into there. And I don't know, is that on purpose or is that, that just the natural way that you write? I think that's just inevitable. Uh, I seem to have a number of different themes. And, right. you know, people walking home from the pub or coming back home is, is one of them. So Worcester City After Dark is yes. another. Quite a lot about the natural world. Lockdown. And it's like all the usual subjects had gone. The events had gone. We were very much thrown back onto what we already had. And I live in the middle of a city, so it was all... Natural world in the urban. And this is where the inspiration for your book, which I went to your book launch. Yes. Picking blackberries in a plague year. Indeed. Which I have a copy. Yes. So talk about the inspiration for that. Yes. Did you sit down and thought, I'm going to write a book about blackberries and plague year, or did you just start writing poetry? It was never that coherent. Okay. My last book, The Awkward People. Yes. That came out... Uh, after my year as Worcestershire Poet Laureate. Yes. Yeah, so obviously I continued writing poetry. I kept thinking I wanted to do something, maybe put together another collection. And, and I'm fantastically good at procrastinating. <laughs> you know, it takes years and years for me to do anything coherent or sensible. But then, of course, lockdown, and I found I, found I was very... I had a whole surge of creativity then. But for me, I was really writing a lot. And so, so obviously that became the theme. No, the sort of title poem, Black Boys, it almost seemed to, to sum it up in these dreadful, complicated times where we don't know what's going to happen. There is still the natural world that's giving of itself. You just have to go out and experience. And even in the city, it will still be there somewhere. You can still find it. Yes. So the awkward people, which you just mentioned, roughly 2018, after Poet Laureate, which we should yes. touch on, as usual, I procrastinated my collection. I didn't come out until 2018. Yes. So how did Poet Laureate come about? No, I've actually been working at it for several years. Okay. And just going back and keeping going every time. Yes. And not relenting until he said yes in the end. <laughs> 
So how how was that year for you? Because it's it's a huge responsibility, isn't it? It's well, 2016, then there was the Brexit referendum, and you know, I was just so in such a state after that. I couldn't. I could pen, pen to paper for a few weeks. A bizarre year. I think most poets laureates since then have had peculiar years. Yeah, we've all had something, whether it's pandemic or economic collapse or. So did that inspire the awkward people? That was actually a poem I'd already written. Yeah. Is there an awkwardness of people that catches your eye? Not really. That one came about through various complications, let's say, about arising from having artistic sensibility in the normal world and what normals expect of us. Okay. And always getting in trouble for for not being normal enough. <laughs> What is normal? Well, exactly. Well, uh, yeah, I've never understood what normal is, really. So where did you go from writing poetry, you've always written poetry, mm. to then performing poetry? How did that happen? Well, there wasn't really a performance poetry scene. Okay. You know, you might stand up in front of the class and read your bit, and the, you know, the kids would laugh at you, <laughs> especially if you weren't the popular girl in the school. Um, but... Probably about 2000. I did a couple of events. I mean, this is over 20 years ago. I don't remember very clearly. I remember I did something at uh, the underground theatre space in the arts workshop. I saw that you did Worcester's Lost Theatre in 96. Oh, oh yes, that, that was my prose book. Right. Uh, non-fiction about the history of the Theatre Royal. Yes. And since that came out, I've been... Well, until 2020, certainly. I was going around a lot of U3As and WIs and other other groups and pensioners' lunch clubs. So U3A, I'm ignorant. U- University of the Third Age. Okay. It's for retired people. They do talks and excursions to interesting places. And then, of course, Litfest came along. Yeah. And performance poetry was suddenly a thing again. Is this Worcester Literature it, Festival? Yes. Right, okay. Oh, no, I just talked to it like a duck to water. I was the first performer at the first ever 42. That's 42 Worcester, yeah, which Worcester is a Worcester. sci-fi golf horror yes. open mic, is that correct? Yes, yeah. it's, um, yes, 42 started up in 2011. And I hadn't actually performed for, for a while. And I was put on first. I was the only female on the, on the line-up. And, yeah, I just talked to it like a duck to water. And then started going to the precursor of speaking, which is called Paroli Pilate, and it's never stopped. You've got, there's a theatre about it, mm. and for me, it's something that you don't see very often, um, and it's like, it's one of the things that's a passion for me, it's just mm. like, I want to project, yes. I want to, want to perform the poetry exactly. as much as read the words. So, did, was there a moment there that you thought, this is, this yeah. is me, this is me doing yeah. what I love? When I'm up on stage... I always describe it as performing rather than reading. Because reading is what you do on your own, silently, looking down onto the page. In front of an audience, you, it's almost like you've got, a, you've got a duty to the audience to make, to present your work and to welcome you into your world. And if you look down and mumble, that's being disrespectful to the audience. And if you turn up unprepared and you're shuffling through your papers, look like you've just come up from the street, it, it does feel disrespectful to the audience. And I know there are people who take different views. 
Um, possibly I'm just old-fashioned, but that's how it works for me anyway. Yeah. They've given up some of their free time to come out and look at you. Yeah. Uh, they might even have paid an entrance fee to come and look at you. Yeah, yeah. But I want to... You you, you stood up at um, Lickfest. And you did a poem, it wasn't your poem, I can't remember who it was. Emily. Might have been Edith Sitwell, Edith, probably. Edith Sitwell. And I was just like, that's what I want to do. Yeah. Not Edith Sitwell, no. but you know, I wanted to stand up and go, boom, there you go. Because everybody was just like, well, I'm like, we're home now. Yeah. And you just, you just sort of got up and you did that. Yes, um, I've got a few Edith's poems as sort of permanent party pieces. And yeah, if there aren't enough performers or yeah. something's a bit slow or something isn't quite working, I will sometimes sort of yeah. stand up. And, uh, I remember one one event. It was at Cradley Heath. It was spoken word plus music, and they've been having these events for some while. And yeah. and they were they were just playing the music. They were getting pissed. They weren't listening to spoken word performances. At the end of it, I was just so fed up. I just stood up and it either sit for a long family and it literally silenced the entire room. What I wanted to talk about, YouTube, 2015, the testimony of Samantha Eldon, aged 13, oh, yes. which I watched. Ah. And I'm like, why doesn't Sus do more YouTube? Well, actually, that's, that piece was one of those that I did at the first ever 42. So, yes, story 42. So I've been talking to a couple of people at one of the on the spoken word events, and they were sort of interested in filming and filmmaking, and had so much along to their place. I thought we were just going to talk about it, and because we do a lot of reads to discuss it, but instead they had a full green screen and auto cue set up, and I wasn't even dressed for it. You know, I was just wearing what I was wearing. Did about three takes. I've never used auto cure green screen before. The auto cure is really, really easy to work with. And I like, well, I'd like to do that again. It would be great fun to report more. Absolutely. But what 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 is the test testimony of Samantha Eldon? Is that fictional? Is that factual? It's a short story. Uh, first person narrative of a thirteen year old girl. Yeah who's playing in the garden one day and her little sister. It's, it's very ambiguous as to what is really happening. This girl is having a psychotic fit or whether her sister really is possessed by a demon. And is it a fictional or is it Oh, yeah, it's all fictional. Okay, oh. okay. Because I was watching it and I was thinking, wow, is this a historical no. document? Because it was... I mean, it says that it, it says a lot about the writing. So you wrote that piece. Yes. Right. Okay. Is that published somewhere other than no, on YouTube? No, just on YouTube. Wow. Okay. I keep thinking I ought to do something about the stories I've done forty-two over the years. Yeah. As I said, I'm very good at procrastinating. <laughs> and this oh. I've been procrastinating on this for for a very long time. And so you've just put out um, picking blackberries in the play here. Yes. I went to launch. It was very good. Would you mind reading us a couple of poems? Oh what? yeah. Thank you. And the first one from a book called The Poetry of Worcestershire by Office Press, and that is called Aniseed. And this one came out from the time when I was poet in residence at the Museum of Royal Worcester, the Porcelain Museum. And at the end of my first year, I put out uh, a pamphlet called The Aniseed Elite. It's based on the lives of the workers at the porcelain, at the porcelain factories. 
And that one in particular came out of meeting four porcelain workers and hearing about hearing about the aniseed smell that clung to them. We smell of sweet shops. Aniseed. Yes, aniseed. We cannot help but smell of aniseed. It permeates our hair, our clothes, our skin. Dogs love us. Short customers, maybe not so much. In front of me, in the Woolworths queue, the fussy woman made complaint in a loud and self-important voice about the funny smell. The girl behind the till, she smiled. She winked at me, an initiate who knew what the smell of aniseed meant. It's the aniseed oil that thins the paint. Its scent is the swoosh of the curtain, the spotlight on the catwalk, a never-ending fanfare to announce us, the porcelain painters. Aniseed is intimate, stays close, comes home with us and marks us out, follows us as closely as our thoughts. The scent becomes our closest friend. We're an aniseed elite. Thank you very much. <laughs> and the other poem I was hoping you would read for us is from your new collection, Picking Blackberries in a Plague Year, and it's called Ghost Gardens. Yes, this, is, this feels very relevant at the moment, in the middle of this heat wave. I spend far too much time with that watering can. <laughs> Ghost Gardens. No rain for weeks. The drought torments the garden and the gardener are calling out for evening duties when the sun no longer touches leaves. Time for the heavy watering can, piped water, sad substitute for flowers when the grass is cornflake crunchy underfoot. The gardener works to keep her plants alive, while the drought contrives to tell an older story. A camera drone might spot it, flying double house height over dying lawns, ghost gardens. Lost, elaborate parterres, grubbed out, forgotten years ago. The ephemeral art of living things. The art in time that changes, thrives and dies. Shown now in outline, yellow, brown and green. Laced work of old design, of paths and beds. Where owners and admiring guests once walked. Spoke of rare flowers, of herbs and fine design. Where gardeners worked and watered as now I work and water. I hope that I might have their sympathy. I try to keep my plants alive while the drought reveals ghost gardens from the past. Wow, beautiful. <laughs> and that's in picking blackberries in a plague year. Yes, highly appropriate for the current situation. It certainly is. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> what are you working on now? I'm writing this set of vampire novels and it's, I seem to be working on them for a very long time. I keep thinking I'm just... A, at the moment, I'm on the stage where I think the first three in the series, the series of five novels, are ready to go. And the fourth one is into fairly final edits. The fifth one is still fairly rough and raw. But in, the, in, this, in this hot weather, I'm not really writing much. I find I write the most in spring and in autumn, which are, which are like the active seasons. That's when the... The world is changing, the day lengths are changing. You look out the window and something different is happening. Summer and winter are the passive seasons. They're dead boring, every day's the same. Once autumn comes, 
So where do people find you, Sus? Um, if they wanted to see your works, if they wanted to... Where do they find you online? Or where do they find you in the real world? Well, I'm usually in the real world. I usually lurk in the museum, actually. Or somewhere in between. <laughs> or performing. Or out of the speakeasy. Where would, where would people go to find your book, Picking Black Prison and Plague Year? Online at Black Pear Press. I shall read you out the web yeah, address. www.blackpear.net Sir Swingspear, thank you very much for joining me in this ever-increasing noisy... Thank <laughs> you. It's hot. It's noisy. It is. And with that, thank you so much for joining me on this poetic podcast. You can find my poetry videos on YouTube and TikTok. I do hope you will join me here again. My name is Jay Rosanna, and this has been The Poetic Podcast. Bye-bye.